So good morning. I'm Joel. I welcome anyone who's joining us on live stream. I look forward to you being with us in person that our joy may be made complete. Uh, we're looking at 1 John chapter 2 this morning, but I don't want to start there. I want to do something a little different. Before I read the sermon text, which you can find printed in your bulletin, let us recite our September verse of the month together. And by the way, this is Jesus' prayer to his Father right before he goes to the cross. Let us recite together our verse to meditate on. Let us say, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let that sink in for a second. If I were to walk the streets and survey folks who said they were Christians, and I asked them, why did the father send his son? What kind of answers do you think I would get? Some would say Jesus came to bring us peace. Others would say he came to save us from our sins, to conquer death, to defeat Satan, to make us better people, to give eternal life. And all those answers would be right. But if that is as far as we would go, if that would be your answers there, do you know what Jesus would say to you right now? You've missed the whole point. You missed the whole point why the Father sent me. Jesus says to you this morning, the reason I came and did all that I did and I'm still doing what I'm doing right now is so that you might know God. The eternal life, Jesus says, that I won for you is knowing God, having personal relationship with Him really and truly. Your reason for existing is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Knowing God, having personal, real relationship with your Creator is the reason for your being. The good news, friends, this morning is that God wants relationship with you. That is what John has been teaching us. He began this letter talking about he and others, how they had seen, heard, and touched God. Jesus, John had said Jesus had come, the Son of God took on flesh and entered into our broken world. And now he knew personal relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And he said, guess what? You can have it too. And the first thing we need to know about this God, then John says, is that God is light. God is holy, perfectly pure. He is truth, utterly upright. See, false teachers had come in and were saying, sin's no big deal, or even sin isn't even a reality, kind of like today. And John says, no, 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 no. You cannot know God personally and ignore sin. And then John peels back the veil, the heavenly veil, to show us what's happening in heaven right now. This is where we ended last week. There's a scene of Jesus pleading on our behalf to the Father for sinners. We're going to reread that. I'm going to actually come back to it next week too. Because that heavenly scene is so important to help us understand how we can be rightly related, have personal relationship with God. And then John is going to give us three tests. We'll look at the first one of how we can know that we know God. Do you want to know the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son whom he sent? Amen. Do you want assurance that you actually do know him? Do you want to deepen that relationship? 
I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Let's pray that that happened. Father, you say in your word that the most true thing, the most real thing about us is our desire for you, to know you. We pray that if we know you, enable us to experience you in a deeper way. If we don't, will you open the eyes of our hearts to behold your glory, to be transformed, and to be fully satisfied. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I entitled this sermon, How to Know That You Know. How to Know That You Know. John says in verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him. And John is about to give us a diagnostic test to examine our personal relationship with God. Actually, you can ask Mike about diagnostic tests earlier. He runs diagnostics on trucks all the time to see if everything is good under the hood. And that's what John is doing here in chapter 2. To understand our relationship with God, to see what is true inside our hearts subjectively, we actually need objective tests, external tests to monitor our spiritual life in God. Test number one, John's going to talk about is our obedience. Knowing God is volitional. Test number two is our love. Knowing God is emotional and ethical. Test number three is our doctrine. Knowing God is informational or intellectual. And we're only going to look at test number one today, the test of our obedience. We can have assurance, assurance on earth of our relationship and even grow deeper in relationship with God by these tests that John is giving us because, friends, John is writing this letter because he really, really wants you to know God, to truly know him. For homework, I invite you to read First John this week and count how many times you find the word know. I count it, actually. And then you can come to me and tell me if I got the number right or wrong, all right? I encourage you to read that. The point I'm making is John wants us to know God personally and to know that we know God, truly. Friends, your Bible, this right here, is a communication from God. It is God's invitation for you to know him and the son that he sent. And knowing God is not just knowing about him. It's not just knowing about someone. Knowing God in the Bible, this term knowing, is to know personally, to know intimately. Knowing comes when our conversation moves past, you know, things. You know, I'm in a conversation with someone, we talk about the work, we talk about weather, you know. No, knowing is moving farther. It's sharing feelings with someone, finding out their concerns. 
It is to start to truly trust someone. It's when you begin to put those heart guards down, allow yourself to be vulnerable with someone. You trust them. You actually let another person penetrate into the inner recesses. Friends, this is biblical knowing. In fact, in Genesis 4, you read, it starts off, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and had a son. Now, the fact that a son was conceived from this knowing means that this is a very intense, intimate knowing. You see what I'm saying? I'll confess, it's actually the Hebrew word yada, and I'll confess that I actually learned that word from the old sitcom Seinfeld. By the way, Jerry Seinfeld is a Jewish person. The word was used to gloss over casual sexual relationships between people. Elaine would say, yeah, so-and-so went to dinner with so-and-so, and they went back to his place, and yada, 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 and then she didn't come to work today because she was too, too tired. That story actually captures the story of the Old Testament. God wanted Israel to know him, his people, but Israel chose the yada, yada, yada with the world over and over and over again. It's actually the point of the book of Hosea. Hosea marries a woman who is unfaithful. God tells him to. As a picture of this is God's relationship with his people. And then Hosea wonderfully redeems her despite her adultery. The call then in Hosea 6 is, now that we see what God has done, let us press on to know the Lord. Hosea and the prophets They're constantly defying Israel and they're defying us to think that there's anything in this world more satisfying than knowing God and having relationship with him. And Jeremiah 31 prophesies a glorious day when this will become a reality. He writes, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then you turn the page to the New Testament. And Jesus, the word becomes flesh. And the New Testament word is, Know the Lord. And it actually becomes a word now for the whole world. Not just Israel. Know the Lord. This is why Paul, writing the church of Ephesians, these Gentiles, he says he's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The primary question that the New Testament asks is, do you have personal relationship with God? Do you know the Father and the Son through the revelation of the Spirit? Do you truly know him? Paul goes on to pray again in Ephesians 3, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's a million sermons right there, and that right there. The primary message of Paul, of John, of the entire New Testament is that you not only know about God informationally, but that you know him in a way that surpasses intellectual knowledge, which is important, but that your knowledge would become volitional, emotional, which actually proves that it is personal and relational. 
John wants to know that you are actually on the path to the personal and have assurance that you're not just fooling ourselves, which actually I believe that's why he starts off this chapter, my little children. My little children. Because John, who, by the way, is a very elderly man, probably in his 90s right now, he sees us all as little children. He wants to say, I love you. I love you like little children. But he also addresses us this way because we know little children, looking at Mike here, looking at Cindy, little children can be sneaky and deceitful. And John actually warned us in the last chapter not to be self-deceived. Don't be self-deceived. It is normal for us to deceive ourselves and to think we're all good with God. How many people you talk to and you know the life they're living, they're not close, and they're like, oh, I'm all good with God. One of the scariest verses, I think, in all the Bible is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23. You have all these folks who think they're part of God's family and they face Jesus at heaven's gates and they pull out their list and Jesus, I did this for you and this and this and this in your name, blah, blah, blah. You know what Jesus says to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. There was no personal relationship. Lots of people are self-deceived today. And John doesn't want that for you, my friends. Now, I know that sounds harsh for Jesus to say that, but Jesus tells us that so that we won't be self-deceived. Our good works, our list, is not going to get us into heaven. Only a personal relationship with Jesus will. And to be honest, you don't want heaven if you don't want personal relationship with Jesus because that's what heaven is all about. And friends, to not want Jesus, my non-Christian, my not-yet-Christian friend, that is to be in self-delusion. Because nobody has ever loved you more or better than Jesus Christ. John is writing to show that God wants relationship. And for us to see that the barrier to that relationship starts with us. We are sinners and God is light. And our sin stops our fellowship. That's why John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Sin wrecks relationship. That's why God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden from the very beginning. See, God made us in his image. We're the pinnacle of creation, as Mark noted. We're unique. We were made to reflect God's glory out of all creation in a unique and special way. And that first sin, Adam and Eve blew our relationship to bits. We actually, at that moment, and we all have included in this, we have ruined God's finest masterpiece. You need to think of it that way. God's finest masterpiece we have ruined. What would happen if you went down to the museum, maybe they had the Picasso in there down the street, and you decided to ruin it, throw mud on it, take a knife to it? What would happen? Well, you would sit in jail for a long time, and you'd have to pay a lot. Not that you could ever pay off a Picasso how much it costs, right? How many more years do we owe? How much more debt have we racked up when we soil the masterpiece of the infinite almighty God? And we can't repair ourselves either. That's the bad part. And John says that. He says sinlessness is not achievable on earth. He's made that very clear. We continue to wreck ourselves constantly. So that's why John says, I'm telling you this so you don't sin, but when you do sin, look up. Look up. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, this is a picture of what is happening in heaven. 
And it's so important that we keep this right in front of us. It shows us that Jesus' work did not finish when he was raised up to glory. Jesus is right now our advocate. He's like a lawyer pleading our case right at this very moment. And we talked about how Jesus is our attorney, but there's more to it than that. As an attorney, he also became our federal head, we talk about. He is our representative. He's like our champion. So whatever he achieves, we get included in that victory. That's why he calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, Jesus came to earth in our flesh so that God's masterpiece could finally be fully on display for all the world to see. Unruined, untarnished, perfect. For the entire course of Jesus' life on earth, the glory of God was revealed as Jesus lived perfectly. Read him in the Gospels. Jesus became our righteousness because he obeyed the Father on our behalf. No sin. Notice in verse 5 of our text how John speaks of being in him. That means in Jesus. This is something we hear Paul saying all the time. Paul speaks of how we're so united to Christ that we're actually in him. It's called union with Christ, where we are brought into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the Father looks at the believer, he looks at Sandy and Mike and all of us here, and he says, wow, you've been as obedient as Jesus Christ when he walked on the face of the earth. What a glorious display you were. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) And then John also adds, he is the propitiation. That gets at the problem of the debt that we owe for ruining the masterpiece. That means Jesus paid the penalty on the cross when God the Father poured out his wrath that we deserved on the Son. You see, we deserve to be locked up under God's wrath for eternity. But Jesus went to hell on the cross. That's what we recite in our Apostles' Creed. And because you and I are in him, there's a real sense in which we can say, the moment we first believed, we were a brand plucked out of the fire. We already went to hell for our sins because we're in Christ. Do you get that? Are you thankful for that? That means we no longer have any time to serve. We no longer have any debt that we owe to God. Jesus is holding forth before his Father an open and shut case. It's once for all sacrifice at Calvary. Now I'll repeat what I said last week because we tend to think of this scene all wrong. We confess our sins, right? We just did that earlier. And here's what we see. We think of Jesus before Father Judge, right? Oh, please forgive Joel. He blew it once again. Yeah, he did it again. I know it's the 10th time today, but please forgive him. The father looks at the son that he loves so much, and he says, okay, for Jesus, for you, Jesus, I love you so much. I'll have mercy on Irvin there. Boy, what a mess. And we thank Jesus that in his love, he went to bat for us once again. Phew, we escaped the father's justice once again. And I wipe the sweat off my brow, and I say, finally, I have a clean slate again. Whew. But I'm on probation. Now i got to try to do better. But then I blow it again. (laughs) Or God's word. I'm reading it and it shines in on something creepy crawling in my heart that I didn't even know was there before. And then I'm a nervous wreck again, right? Because when will the father judge just say, Jesus, enough is enough? Justice must be served, right? But friends, John is showing us a different picture altogether. John is not showing us Jesus begging over and over that he will show us mercy and not justice, ignore justice. No. John Stott writes, In the picture of the righteous advocate standing before the Father on our behalf, 
The case is not that of love pleading with justice, rather the opposite. Justice pleads with love for our release. Jesus is actually demanding justice over and over, that the Father who loves us and sent his Son be just and not to do double jeopardy. And that sends me straight to the moon when I really think about it, that the Father God is both light and love, and his Son has accomplished all that I need so that I am off the hook and I can now live in knowing that I have a relationship with my Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the Father requires perfection and penalty for sin, which is why in love he sent his Son. And Jesus has an open and shut case. Justice has been fulfilled on our behalf. That means you and I were never on probation. Rather, we're fully forgiven out of the infinite resources of Jesus Christ because he's fully God. And that's what John means when he says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the entire globe. Now, some have taken this to mean universal salvation. That would contradict so much that we find in the Bible. Payment does not equal automatic forgiveness of sins. You have to have relationship. You have to go to Jesus. You have to admit your sin, and you have to say, Jesus, will you be my advocate? Calvin writes, John refers to all who would believe and those who are scattered throughout various regions of the earth for the grace of God has, grace of Christ has really made clear when it is declared to be the only salvation of the world. This message you see was new in John's day. He's saying the whole world is under sin's dominion. That's, That's a problem. But that's why Jesus came, not just for Israel, But for the whole world, Jesus is the personal Savior for anybody in the globe who will come to him and seek relationship with him. The question is, is he your Savior through personal relationship? Do you know Jesus that way? Test number one. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Knowing God is evidenced by Obedience, new obedience every week. Obedience is the result of actually knowing God. On the flip side, if you know what God requires and you don't obey, you do need to ask yourself, dear friend, do I have eternal life? Now, how do you hear this test, this first test? I was actually talking with someone just a few days ago and I got to share the gospel with them. And I asked her what she thought about the Bible. And she had a lot to say, but one thing she says is basically it's a book of rules, like all the other religions. Do these things, go to church, don't have sex outside marriage, be kind to others, and don't do these things. God is against this, God is against that. And it made it really hard for her to be a Christian because she had done a lot of those things and was doing a lot of those things. I actually really appreciated her honesty. Sadly, I think perhaps that's the main message most Christians that she's encountered have told her, that the Bible, here you go, here's a rule book so that you can go to heaven. Dallas is getting upset here because that's wrong. Friends, the Bible is not in the first place a rule book. It is an invitation God sent so that you would know him personally. That's what Jesus said in Luke 24 to his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He said, the whole Old Testament, you know what it's about? Me. It's all about me, showing your need for me. 
That's what makes the Bible and Christianity different from all other religions. It's personal. It's personal. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. You know what Jesus just did? He just made the Christian religion personal. It's all about him. You cannot say you love Jesus and have a relationship if you don't find his laws precious, if you're not keeping them, seeking to obey them, which is what John says next. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. John says to God up there, you're either Pinocchio or you're passionate. You're either a liar or you are loyal. And that test reveals what's inside. You're either void of truth or you're filled with love. I think that's the key here. The love of God or being void of truth. Some folks will argue against Christianity saying it doesn't make sense. They say, how could a good God permit such evil in the world if he's all-powerful, right? We hear that all the time. How can the Bible say that homosexuality is wrong when people love each other? How can folks who never hear about Jesus, how can they be saved, right? There's all these intellectual questions. But the Bible is not a science book, a philosophy book. It's not a therapy book. Whatever you want. It's a book that says, will you believe Jesus? And will you take him at his word? Jesus says, he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? That's the Jesus you encounter on the pages of scripture. Who do you say that I am? It's about relationship. That's why many folks say they don't believe in Christianity. You see, it's not an intellectual problem. It's a personal one. You have to take Jesus at his word. You have to hear his invitation and then come to him honestly with a lot of personal disclosure. You have to talk to him like a person and be real. And if you haven't done that, then you're not a Christian. You have to open your heart. You have to doubt your doubts and trust him absolutely. And only then by saying, I believe in you and I want you to reveal yourself. It's only as you begin to do that that you begin to enter into personal relationship with him and seek to give him that 100% that he desires. That's how much he desires of us. He doesn't want 90%. He doesn't want to be your 75% savior. He wants to be your 100% savior. Praise be to God. And he desires that. And you know what happens when you begin to do that? You begin to find the truth. That's all secondary to relationship. The only way you ever come to truth is by first, by faith, entering into relationship. We don't understand in order to believe. You'll never get there. You believe in order to understand. And if you lie, if you ignore what God tells you, you say, I don't like what you say I have to do or, or what I would have to give up, then you don't want relationship with God and truth will always elude you. And God's love will never be perfected in you. It's an interesting, I wrestled with this in my mind. Is that God's love for us? Or are we being transformed so we can love like God? Or is it our love actually for God being perfected? John may have all three in mind. I don't want to get in this either-or fallacy. But I suspect the last because this is how relationships work. 
We have to give up our independence. We have to give up what we want in order to be totally committed. Isn't that true? Relationships require us to let go of control of what all we want out of love for that other person. Our behaviors change. Let me tell you, when I first met Jamie, I was a very different person with all very different behaviors. But as I got to know her and came to discover the desires that she had for me, guess what? I had to change. I had to change. And guess what? It's a continuing transformation because I'm still learning how to love her as I enter more deeply into a relationship, as we let our heart guards down more and more. It's constant transformation. Why do marriages go bad? Because love is not being perfected. Because I'm trying to see how much I can get away with still and not end up in the doghouse, right? Because I'm putting what I want over our relationship. But there's little relationship then, right? That's actually why many people don't get married today, right? They fear losing their independence. But the only way not to lose your independence is to never get in a relationship. And C.S. Lewis, right? He says, oh, give your heart to nobody. And then what happens? Your heart becomes irredeemable, calcified. It becomes hard. You have to be vulnerable. The moment you get into any relationship, immediately there are expectations put upon you to change. And we're hardwired from birth. Actually, the five-month-old that we were fostering. <laughs> she'd wake up, and the moment she saw us, she'd start kicking her legs and just smiling. You know what she's saying? I'm expecting you to come over here and pick me up. And if we didn't, what'd she do? Start fussing and crying, right? She had expectations. We're hardwired for this. That's John's point. God has expectations for you. God would not be love if he left you in your sin. That's why God is light. He wants you to change. And if you want to know God, if you truly want to know God, you have to change. You have to change. He wants you to start living the eternal life, not how you used to. He wants you to know him and his heart for you. Jesus says, my teaching has to take precedent over your feelings, over people's opinions, what is practical, Jesus says, do you want to be in growing personal relationship with me? Then you have to give up control of your life and what you want. By the way, Jesus did that for you. We see the love of God being perfected at Gethsemane. When Jesus struggled to obey God's revealed will as the cross loomed, he struggled for you. Jesus said at the end, though, praise be to God, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And Jesus gave his life for you. And now he's asking you to do the same, to walk as he did. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John just given us another angle on the obedience test here. He's saying talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. We must walk our talk. If we belong to Jesus, our behavior must match. That is proof we abide in him. And I think John is remembering what Jesus once said in John 15. In fact, read John 14 to 16, and you're just going to see 1 John over and over again. Jesus once said to John, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove that you're in relationship with me. We prove to be disciples when we bear the fruit of repentance and continual obedience. When we let him cut away at us. Yes, painfully. See, we're dead branches. And he is the life-giving vine, pulsating with eternal life. When we see the relational aspect here being joined to Jesus, we will want to walk with him. We'll be singing in a minute. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Friends, this morning you're being invited to let God cut away behaviors that belong to the age of the dead and the dying and to enter in the greater reality, which is ours now, eternal life, by being joined to Jesus Christ. But as I end, I just want you to note there's multiple branches noted here. Being joined to Jesus means being joined in relationship with others. I'll get to that next week. That's actually where John is leading us. But I do want to say everyone is invited to join us for our membership class Saturday. We'll be talking about how our culture teaches us how to be self-centered, to be alone branches. Jesus is inviting us in a relationship with himself that means spending ourselves for others. And that is actually the path to true eternal life, to actually getting all the things you really will satisfy your soul ultimately. What happens when you're serving others for Jesus is that you find out there's far greater blessings than those you would just seek if you try to be all on your own, trying to get everything you can, suck it out of life. When you realize that life isn't about you, it's all about him, friends, you will shine like a comet, glorifying God, bearing fruit, and also finding assurance. Don't you want to know that you know that you're abiding in him, that you're walking with Jesus every step of your life? Let me close with a quote by Kevin DeYoung. He says, Bearing good fruit brings God glory. When we look and act like Jesus, it shows that he is good enough to save us, valuable enough to be followed, and strong enough to change us. God is not glorified by nominal Christians who never lift a finger to serve others, or egg-headed believers who never pray or evangelize, or cranky disciples who show zero love, joy, patience, or kindness. God is glorified. We follow Jesus in all of life and bear fruit as his disciples. May we all leave here deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ and seeking to trust and obey. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> what manner of love is this? That we should be called the children of God. And such we are. And we know that the world out there does not know Jesus, does not know him like we do. And I ask and pray that we will first see what a privilege it is to be invited into personal relationship with you, our Creator, through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you might show us ways 
that you're wanting us to change that we might know your heart better, that we will actually bear the fruit of obedience in our lives by seeing that scene up in heaven right now, that in fact we have already entered into eternal life. We're fully forgiven, blood-bought, spirit-filled, children of the King. Help us to take in the reality of who we are and who we belong to. And then may we go out and shine like stars. May we encourage each other in the faith. May we be a church that is united in Jesus Christ and sharing the good news to a lost and dying world. Father, we want to do mattering things in these mere moments we have. So will you do something momentous in each and every heart this week? We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.